0: If you're using a hybrid cloud storage system that keeps a cache of your data on premises and then stores the primary copy in the cloud, you may be wondering if you need to back up this data. If you're familiar with me, you might think you already know what I'm gonna say at this point, and my answer might surprise you. If you're not familiar with me, hi, I'm W. Curtis Presson, AKA Mr. Backup. For over 30 years, I've had a singular passion for helping others protect their data with backup and disaster recovery systems. Every episode of this podcast starts with a brief overview of backup related news, followed by a deep dive into a single area or lesson that you can apply in your environment to protect you from horrible things like ransomware. Welcome to the Backup Wrap-Up. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, W. Curtis Preston, AKA Mr. Backup. And I have with me my T568B consultant, Persona
1: Maliandi. How's it going, Persona? I'm good, Curtis. And it took me a second to realize what you were talking about. <laughs> I knew you would figure it
0: out, though, because you know, you got those little nerd bits up in your brain that just get activated when I say certain things
1: what is the t568b and a it is the standard for how your ethernet cables are run whether which pairs go together and there are apparently two standards
0: yeah i think the a is the old b is the new they all work as long as you do the same thing on both ends of the cable
1: unless you're building a crossover cable, in which case don't yeah, do that.
0: Don't do that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the thing is I'm, uh, I recently discovered that I have, uh, what do you call it that the phone jacks in my house actually have RJ that, that they have cat six run to them. And so I'll be wiring them as ethernet ports. And so hence my interest in the subject, but uh, let's get yeah. off of that nonsense and get right onto the news of the day. You know what we need? We need a, we need like a letter, like a boach. Like wow. <laughs> yeah. Who's the day? Let's start with our little story from a small, it's a startup, I believe. It's a startup company. It's called
1: Toyota. It's a small startup. I don't believe that they pronounce the second T as a T. Really? Toyota? How else would you pronounce it? Yeah. I think, I think the official name was Toyota. But they, I think they figure that Americans wouldn't be able to pronounce that. Oh,
0: interesting. This is a Japanese thing. Yeah. So what in the world happened over Toyota, Persona?
1: Yeah, just something about them trying to make a bunch of cars. <laughs> and then for some reason... A whole bunch of their manufacturing plants. I think fourteen of them shut yeah. down. Yeah, as they're trying to crank out. So if you were waiting for the new Prius Prime, <laughs> yeah, or the new Prius or the new Rav Four, you might have. Yeah, to wait if a you're
0: week. on the if you're on the list of people desperately trying to get a Prius Prime instead of just a Prius, this is why. This is the worst. Is they were doing scheduled maintenance mm-hmm. on their database, <clears throat> and they neglected to take into account. The amount of space necessary to do the task, and they ran out of storage space on their production system, and it just halted production
1: at a dozen factories. I don't know what to say. Yeah, And the crazy thing is, it's not like, oh, I've just got to free up space, and then boom, everything's going to come back online. Like, restarting a production line is time-consuming and very hairy.
0: You know, it reminds me uh, when I was at the bank a hundred years ago, when the EPO button was pressed, I won't say who, it was was me. So shutting it down was easy. Bringing the bank, the bank, nobody knew how to bring everything back online. It's probably the same thing here. And here's the part that just, this sentence in this article from bleepingcomputer.com, which I'll link to in the show description, Toyota explains that its main servers and backup machines operate on the same system. Due to this, both systems face the same failure, making a switchover impossible, inevitably leading to a halt in factory operation. So they don't have high availability yeah. <laughs> then? So I or think are they running
1: like two virtual machines on the same Here's machine? what I think
0: that means. They do have standby machines. Maybe what this means, what they don't have is standby storage. The storage was the thing that had the outage. And so since both the backup and the primary systems use the same storage, that's not very highly available, right? It's a single point of failure.
1: Yeah, but Toyota, you're a big company. <laughs> I Please just said... spend some money and hire a proper IT consultant to come in or a storage consultant to come in and plan your storage. Yeah, I'm sure there are numerous companies who would like to come talk to you about buying their yeah, products.
0: Exactly. Oh, yeah.
1: Howard would love to talk to you. Howard Parks would would. love to
0: talk to you. This is a classic example of single point of failure. So I I really don't know what to say. And what do we have as our second stone. This one one is actually, I think, more depressing.
1: Yeah, so it's from a, I don't know if it's a company or a news source called Beta News. And they recently published an article by Ian Barker saying that two out of three companies lose data due to failed backups. And Curtis, backups never fail, right? (laughs)
0: Uh, So it was based on a survey from a company called Apricorn. Apricorn? Apricorn? Yeah, I think so. Apricorn?
1: They're an encrypted drive maker. And it was a survey done in the UK, right? So
0: I'm sure things are so much better over here. (laughs) (laughs) Not. Here's the thing that I, when I looked at this article, and again, we'll link to it in the show description, that they said that this was a marked difference from the previous year. So they said a quarter of respondents say the ransomware has been the main cause of a data breach, an increase from 15%, 32% is the people that uh, they had an unsuccessful recovery, and that was up from only 2% in 2022. So a huge change, the thing that I think says everything is they said that this sharp increase in unrecoverability it was basically at the same exact time as there was a sharp decrease in the level of automation. What, you know what I'm yep. talking about there? Yeah, which
1: makes sense, right? Yeah, because it's like, oh, you don't have automated processes in place, tools, et cetera if you don't have those, then how can you really verify that your backups were successful? I know, Curtis, you like to talk about verify your backups, make sure they work before you actually need them. And so if you don't have it, then that makes sense. The other interesting thing in the article, which might go hand in hand Mm -hmm. with this, is they were also talking about how, like with everyone working remote, there was a lot of sort of self-service, let employees do Mm. their own backups, copy the data they want, and we all know how that goes. Come on, Curtis, how often would you backup data on your laptop if someone wasn't sitting there backing it up automatically?
0: Yeah, I've never been a fan of backups that require manual intervention. I understand that in some cases that may be the only choice, but I I think backups should be 100% automated, that new systems that come online, for example, so like when you should be using auto, selection and auto discovery and all of these things so that let's say you're backing up VMware and you add a new VM, that VM will automatically be protected by the backup system. You don't need to add
1: it. I think that anything that you can automate is possible. At least a base level, right? It doesn't have to be like, oh, everything is like super duper protected, but at least you have something going. And just going to the example they gave about trusting employees to copy their data. If you don't want to trust your employees, you could do things like Give them a OneDrive or a Google Drive and have them put their content there and that's where they're creating it. And then you, as a central admin, you now go back up that one repository rather than trusting your users or doing the right Yeah. Yeah. Because we know how that yeah, goes.
0: Exactly. <laughs> so I think that the thing that we can learn from this sort of story is you know an increase in manual backups is a decrease in recoverability. If you walk away with nothing else. Right, Walk away with that piece of information is automation good, manual bad when it comes to backups. The more we can get the human out of the process, the better.
1: And I also want to chime in on one thing, Curtis. I know you probably cut your teeth doing this way back when you started, but even things like scripts, right? People may think scripts are automated, but scripts are not bulletproof.
0: They're not bulletproof. I wrote a lot of scripts back in my day persona i remember i know i remember that one year i remember writing 150 custom shell scripts to make a particular configuration work and it was just and i'm sure every one of those broke at some point yep i wonder if any of them are still in use that was 20 years ago (laughs) probably not 23 years ago yeah so i think it's time for our main topic today Our main topic today is going to be whether or not we need to back up what I'm calling hybrid cloud storage. How would you, how do you think we should define that?
1: (laughs) It's funny. I know we recently just talked about like the public cloud. And if you asked five years ago what the hybrid cloud is, you'd probably get very different answers from different people. I think though, what you're starting to see is people coming to the realization that hybrid cloud is where you own some of the resources, maybe it's running in your own data center or somewhere like that. And you're also leveraging the benefits of the cloud, but you're not fully embracing the cloud like we talked about with the public cloud in the last episode, right? It's sort of sending some bits and pieces of data, leveraging services where possible, where it makes sense. And otherwise you have a lot of your applications still running in your data center. Now, if we dig into what hybrid cloud storage is though, right? that's the capability where you basically are leveraging all the benefits of having cloud storage. Like we talked last time about infinitely available storage with AWS's S3, right? Google has their own. But in order to access that, you have a component running on-premises in your data center, which your applications can talk to. That way they don't need just to jigger themselves to talk to the cloud. They talk to that one appliance and that one appliance is able to spread the data out amongst the cloud. Sometimes it keeps a local copy cached on that appliance. So then you get almost instant access. like as if the system, the storage was local. Yeah.
0: So this is companies like Nasuni, Panera, Cetera. The
1: idea space. is you get a box or multiple
0: boxes. You put the data on that box and then they use the magic of the cloud to make sure that that data is protected. everything that goes on that box is also copied into the cloud, but the box essentially yeah. acts as a cache. The record of authority, I think is the one up in the cloud but you're accessing a local cache of what's in the cloud and then it's through cloud magic they're making sure that the current version as well as historical versions of those files or blocks are stored in the cloud does that sound about right
1: yeah Yeah, that sounds good. Right. And the other benefit that you see typically with this sort of hybrid cloud storage is there are use cases where you have multiple remote offices, all who need to collaborate on a document, like you see this in CAD design, Mm -hmm. or CAD firms, I should say. And so this is where you sort of have multiple people all collaborating and being able to synchronize and get access to the same files without necessarily having multiple copies all spread out. And they all have their own cache for performance reasons, especially with CAD files, they're very large.
0: Yeah, so it's, in that sense, it's like a big, much more expensive, say Dropbox, right? It's both a it's yeah. a collaboration tool as well as a on-prem storage solution.
1: Yeah, and the one thing I wanted to correct, Curtis, I know you said they give you like a box uh-huh. Right. I think we need to be careful these days. Like, It's not always a physical yeah. box, if that's what our listeners think. Right, Many times, it's a software package that you install in a hypervisor, right, and that gives it the functionality it needs. It doesn't have to be a physical server. Oh, well, the hypervisor's on a box. So I still say that's a, yes, I know what you're saying. It's not yes, necessarily it is, a physical
0: yeah. appliance that you're getting from this company. Yeah, yeah. it's just an on-prem component. That may be a physical box. It may be a VM in your, in your uh, virtualization world. So the question, persona, as is often the question.
1: How about I ask you the question? What? Oh, okay. This time I'll ask yeah. you and Curtis, I know that your stance has always been back up everything, yeah, back up right? all the things now in the case of, yeah, back up all the things in the case of hybrid cloud storage do I need to back it up? I know we talked about public cloud last episode, right? And I know in the past we've talked about traditional data sources. What's your take on hybrid cloud storage?
0: So first off, let's start with the concept of backup all the things, right? Assuming that the data that you're putting on there has value to the your organization, it needs to be backed up. Hopefully it does. Okay. <laughs> there's just, there's just no yep. question about that. The question i think that is appropriate to this scenario is whether or not it is being backed up right i think the first thing to think about is are there two copies right and then are there historical copies and the answer is it depends <laughs> right? depends on the for, vendor for the recent data there are definitely two copies Right, there is the copy on your local device. There is the copy that is up in the cloud because by design, everything you put on the device is copied up into the cloud. So there you have two copies. Depending on what you're syncing to, you could also argue that there are typically three copies up there because if you're syncing to S3 or something like S3, you are using object storage that is automatically replicating its data to multiple locations. So you have multiple locations that are subject to different risk profiles assuming they're far enough apart.
1: But here's my thing. Typically what you're storing though in that case is probably something that is in a native format for that storage appliance, Mm -hmm. right? And so you are at a single point of failure at that instance, right? Because if say something gets corrupt with the metadata, right? Or if it's for some reason, unable to piece together what's been stored in the backend, like, how do you know that like the file table or the entire file system with all the metadata has been backed up as well? If something gets corrupt, how do you restore that? If someone deletes a file, right, how do you do that? Or if you need to restore, right, does that require you to completely spin up a new software appliance somewhere and connect it in? And what does that look like? So I think while I agree with you that, yes, you do have your copy in the cloud, and so it meets all those principles, I think it depends what you're trying to recover from, which will determine if it's really a backup or if you really need to back it up or not yeah so
0: I think we're in agreement there. I was just one thing at a time, right? I was thinking first, let's think about it, the files. Now we have to think about the file yeah. system and the configuration that you're right that in this case you um you're using essentially a cloud gateway the now if it's the appliance itself that dies or you're talking about the metadata, you know this sort of fancy file system that metadata and corrupt yeah. is there a facility within that? to rebuild that metadata based on whatever's already up there? Is there a way to rebuild that assuming that gets corrupt? The other thing at that file system, maybe the data is up there is fine. And maybe the box is fine, but I, I got a ransomware attack, right? This is the most common thing, right? Yeah. I got a ransomware attack and it attacked A Windows box that was SMB mounted to, uh, or or the box is SMB mounted to the Windows box. And I was able to go in and corrupt slash encrypt all the files uh, connected to a project or or a work group. And now what we need is not just, we, we haven't corrupted the file system per se as much as what we've corrupted is We've corrupted the current version of the file system version, right? We need yep. to be able to go back in time. So that's the ex- that's the other aspect is, do you have it in multiple locations and then do you have different versions of it over time? What is the yep.
1: company's answer to that Yeah and that's where I think each company is probably going to do something different and you got to dig into the documentation. but it is, like you said, an important question to ask as you're evaluating vendors. Yeah, how do we recover from fat fingering, deleting
0: a file, fat fingering, deleting a directory or accidentally deleting a whole bunch of files? And then of course the, the, what do you call it? The the ransomware Ransomware. attack, thank you.
1: Yeah, the other thing to add to that list, Curtis, is also what happens when metadata in the file system gets corrupted?
0: Yeah, so what happens if the, yeah, exactly. Whatever this magic is, it's taking all those objects and pretending they're a file system. Cause that's essentially what we're doing. We're taking a bunch of yeah. objects stored up an in, in object store and we're making
1: it look like it's a file system. What happens if that gets messed up? How do you recover from that? I think one thing though, that it would be interesting to get your take on this is. When you're doing these backup, you're now locked into that vendors format right? Because it's a vendor's file system that is being versioned, right? Let's assume they have versioning, right? They're able to protect against all those scenarios that we talked about, right? There may still be something to consider that you may want it to be agnostic to that vendor's format. It's a very good point. The best analogy that I have to this
0: is NetApp, right? We go back to NetApp, right? Yep. I knew you were going there. <laughs> so they had all this stuff, they got all this replication. Right? What did people want? They wanted the ability to back up that data and put it in another format. And which, for a record, or for, for the record, that's what I didn't like about NDMP, right? Um, I mean, I, I always saw NDMP as like a necessary evil because it was a better way to back up a NAS box. But one of the things I never liked about NDMP was that wow, it left true. the backup in a format that was only usable on that platform. So yep. th- that was, a, it was, by the way, it was the only way they were able to make it happen is they were able to say to all the NAS vendors, of which at the time there were probably four or five, they said, look, you can use whatever backup format you want. This is a protocol, this is a this yep. is an IO protocol. It's not a backup format protocol. You don't have to go, yeah. yeah. But that's what I didn't like about it is that it wasn't
1: poor. Until you got a company like Avamar who was able to, Crack the code and allow the restores to different file systems.
0: Even there, like they were able to do that for NetApp, but they didn't necessarily do it for other, for other, I'm assuming that the code for UFS dump is available out there somewhere. Yeah. And so it probably wasn't rocket science to crack that particular backup format. But yeah, you make a real, that's a really valid point is to make sure that you at least discuss that question. What do we, what is our plan? If and when the PC hits a rotor oscillator for this product, what is our plan? And yep. because yep. if you're 100% tied into them and you're, you know, that's the whole vendor tie-in and I'm sure they're very Lock happy in. with that. Yep. Yeah. Vendor lock-in. Um, yep. th- I'm sure they're very happy with that. The question is, what is your plan if and when you ever choose to do something different?
1: Yep. It's important to at least ask that question up front because you may not ever consider another vendor forever, right? <laughs> but it's at least an important question to ask up front because if there's a huge switching cost, that's something you should take into consideration. Yeah. So quick answer is yes, every piece
0: of data needs to be backed up. The longer answer is you need to make sure that you've got the location still with, you've got to make sure that you have a recovery plan for when you get attacked by a ransomware bot and it just encrypts your entire system. Does that encrypt your history? Does it encrypt all the versions? Does that that, that encryption automatically Mm -hmm. replicate to the cloud? Because the answer is yes. So the question is how do I go back to before the encryption happened? Uh, what you know what's that process and then i think you know your point about whether or not you've got backups that are have the ability to go back to a different vendor assuming you want to do one Uh, my druther would also be in the back end to have that to have the data also replicated to a an inexpensive copy in another cloud provider that would be my dream that may actually be possible with some of these vendors if you're replicating both to let's just assume for example that the only thing you care about is the active data at least the only one where you care about performance is the active data you want to keep the historical stuff but you don't want to spend a lot of money on it so what would be nice is if the cloud copy could be something like glacier deep archive with instant restore pay the instant restore fee and then also copy that to the equivalent on azure or google and now you've got two independent copies of the data with history, that's cool.
1: Yeah, and I think what they would probably end up doing, what the vendor would do, is they might support two cloud targets rather than trying to copy data just because cloud egress costs are real. Yeah, oh, I see what (laughs) you're saying. You're saying that it'll just send it to both uh, vendors. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Yeah. cloud egress egress costs are very, very real. And I know, Curtis, we like to talk about it a lot on this podcast, but test your recovery scenarios if you are using a hybrid cloud storage, right? Test it with someone. Like, test what happens when you delete a file, right? Can you restore it? Do it before you actually need it. Yeah,
0: yeah. (laughs) And don't do it like our friend in Alaska did it by deleting all your data and then testing it. This is is what the cloud is for, right? Uh, Test. You could probably spin up a copy in the cloud, can't. I can't agree with you more and we can't say that enough is that the only backup that is truly valid is one that's been tested in recovery. Oh yeah, exactly. Well, I think we covered that topic and hopefully answered the question. If you disagree or strongly agree, we'd love to hear from you. You can reach me at Curtis at backup up.com. I look forward to hearing from you. After recording this episode, I had a chance to see one of these vendors present at Tech Field Day. Cetera talked about their Edge filer and how it can replace your on-premises NAS infrastructure with a global file system that is automatically stored in as many cloud accounts and vendors as you ask it to use. It also automatically stores all versions of every file and stores them in an area that they say is air-gapped and immutable. I will say I didn't have enough time to dig deep on those claims, so I would suggest you do so. From a data protection standpoint, the most exciting feature they talked about was Ransom Protect. They monitor all file activity using AI. After the number of suspicious events that you specify, they can alert the appropriate number of people in any monitoring tools that you have, automatically block the offending endpoint, and allow the admin to roll back any encrypted files. They claim to be able to detect and stop the ransomware attack within about 30 seconds, and then they can roll back any files in only a few minutes. That sounds a whole lot better than anything else I've seen. I did ask them about monitoring for suspicious reads as well as writes. If they were able to detect suspicious reads, they could also stop an exfiltration attack, which is quickly becoming the standard. In fact, most cyber attackers are performing exfiltration before they begin any encryption. It seems like they have the tools and logic in place to be able to do this, and they did say that they were looking into it. I will eagerly await their update. Although I stand by our podcast from two weeks ago where we said that perhaps we get a little too excited about new tools and not enough emphasis on things like process, and people, I do think it's still okay to get excited about new tools. So this is, I think, very interesting. I hope you've enjoyed this uh, first actual episode with our new name, The Backup Wrap-Up. This has been a production of Backup Central, edited and produced by yours truly. Any opinions that you hear are those of that speaker and not necessarily their employer. This has been The Backup Wrap-Up.